Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. This April 24th, you are tuning in to another episode of Cold War Brew. And today, I'm going to be discussing an issue that really was a subject in the news, in the corporate news, in the Western media in late March. But uh, this time, uh, I want to talk about it because I think it's a really good example of what I say is the U.S.'s rules for thee but not for me principle in this uh, new Cold War So while you're here, of course, make sure that you are subscribed here. Make sure you're getting the notifications to come back. And I'll probably be speaking for about 20 minutes or so, 20 to 30 minutes uh, about this topic. And then I will take comments, questions about whatever you would like to speak about on this topic or any others. So in late March... China and the Solomon Islands announced that they would be signing off on a security pact. This security pact would mainly be in relations to support uh, and protection for infrastructure projects. And the Solomon Islands has been the subject of numerous occasions, the target of numerous occasions of instability, internal instability in China. The Solomon Islands have economic ties and in, in infrastructure projects being built in the Solomon Islands, which uh, require some form of protection. So the Solomon Islands signed a security pact. This is the right of the Solomon Islands to do, just like any other country. But this particular security pact, this particular deal between China and the Solomon Islands received a hysterical response from the West. And it was so hysterical that in the diplomat and in Australian media, you had the the media essentially calling for regime change openly. Not just insinuating or maybe alluding to the fact that the Solomon Islands government needs to be overthrown. But you had them literally saying that there needed to be a regime change operation to topple the government. And so on March 25th, right after this deal was announced, uh, the diplomat said in an article that this was Australia's Cuban Missile Crisis and that Australia must be willing to invade the Solomon Islands and topple the government if that is what is necessary to stop a proposed security pact between China and the Pacific nation going ahead. And this was from David Llewellyn Smith, who writes for something called Macro Business, and he... Uh, publishes articles in The Diplomat. So there was a lot of hysteria, (laughs) obviously, about the security pact. And not just with Australia, but the United States, the Western media, New Zealand, etc., all signed off on warning the world about how dangerous this very tiny island nation's actions were to allow China to basically go into the West, especially the United States, is quote-unquote backyard in the Pacific, almost like this new Monroe Doctrine for the Pacific region. And so, of course, this is just a really obvious example of the hypocrisy of national security in this new Cold War, right? Because what you're seeing now, right, and this was back in late March, around the time where we were moving on to the one-month anniversary of Russia's military operation in Ukraine. And over the past few months, the United States has been saying nothing but 
oh, Ukraine has the right to decide whether it wants to join NATO or not. But of course, we know that the United States wants Ukraine to openly embrace NATO, which it has in so many ways indirectly. But as you see, Ukraine is free to, as long as it serves U.S. interests, as long as it serves the interests of this new Cold War, to join into any kind of security arrangement, especially with NATO, when it comes to, quote-unquote, defending itself from Russia. But the Solomon Islands doesn't, right? This tiny island blockchain has a long history of dealing with colonialism, during the 19th and into the 20th centuries, Germany, Japan, Britain, essentially all the Western powers at some point or another over a century-long span uh, between the mid-1800s to World War II had something to do with the affairs of the Solomon Islands. And now that it's choosing China as a partner in defense of economic development, because that's what both countries are at least claiming, that this arrangement is for economic development and to ensure that the economic projects that these two countries have together in the Solomon Islands are protected, that now there is somehow some kind of danger that this presents to the quote-unquote rules-based international order. So again, this is a rules for thee, but not for me, right? The United States can coerce, NATO can coerce a country like Ukraine into numerous security arrangements under its own diktats. But when the Solomon Islands, a very small country of only 700,000 people, scattered across an island blockchain, when it decides it wants to independently arrange its security affairs with a country like China, then suddenly the world is on fire. And now the Solomon Islands had a lot of reason to want to engage in this. In November of last year, there were riots, there were uprisings, of a certain kind. It's unclear who was participating in these uprisings, but it was violent and there was a lot of public infrastructure just burned, right? And Chinese infrastructure was targeted because uh, a lot of the development that occurs in nations like the Solomon Islands, truth be told, is assisted and aided by China. <clears throat> and this is not something that's strange. We should understand that a lot of instability and unrest around the world, when it's unclear exactly who is doing it, when it comes to the Pacific, when it comes to the Asia-Pacific region, generally it's targeting China's economic relations with other countries. And that's because Generally, it's a byproduct of U.S. and Western meddling in these countries. Think Myanmar. In Myanmar, where there's been so much instability over the last several years, especially in the last uh, two years, we've seen China's aid, its infrastructure aid, be targeted by NED-backed violent activists, quote-unquote. And then the United States comes in, and employs sanctions on the very state-owned companies in these countries, and they're generally always state-owned, whether we're talking about Myanmar, if we want to go into the context of Eastern Europe, right? Belarus. Sanctions that the United States and the West level upon these countries always target state-owned companies because what the West wants is to open up these countries for plunder, and so the Solomon Islands is no different. So there's unrest in November of 2021. It was unclear exactly who was causing this. But what it, what it told the government of the Solomon Islands, which had been pretty amenable up until 2019 with the West's foreign policy agenda, this new Cold War, it had uh, 
it had pressured local governments to the local government there to recognize Taiwan, pledge millions of dollars of aid. But this event in 2021 showed that there needed to be a stronger security response on the islands to protect economic development. And so that's what spurred this security pact. And how did Australia respond to these uh, quote-unquote riots? Well, they basically occupied the Solomon Islands. They sent troops there for an undetermined amount of time. So Australia, being a colonial power, being an imperialist power, has not only occupied the Solomon Islands for a long time, but you know, ever since these riots has, has openly occupied the island. But now is saying that it will overthrow this government based upon this security pact. So I think that this is an important event that needs to be talked about because part of what the new Cold War is all about is it's first and foremost a war. So the United States is waging what some people call a hybrid war. But really, this new Cold War, I think, is is a more apt term because what it speaks to is it speaks to the policies and the lengths that the United States and its allies will go to in order to antagonize, in order to, quote-unquote, contain, in order to target China and, of course, Russia as part of this as well. So that's what the new Cold War is about. And so, quote-unquote, national security, right, this this concept that has been built up over the course of decades, if not centuries, of U.S. and Western interventionism, imperialism, and colonialism, has won a geopolitical context and geopolitical purpose, and two, is all about creating a world situation that is divided by oppressed and oppressor nations, is fueled by racism, and is all about reinforcing right, hegemony. Reinforcing hegemony. And that's what the United States and the West, with Australia being one of the most dangerous puppets of the United States at this point in the Pacific, they are, and we should very follow this closely, they are sounding the alarm about something that honestly is not so controversial. And why is it not controversial? Because some people may disagree with me. Some people may say, Danny, the Solomon Islands is being occupied by China. China expanding security arrangements with countries like the Solomon Islands is an example of imperialism. How could you say otherwise? Well, Let's look at the global context. Even if right, we just say, let's table the discussion about China being imperialist. And, and maybe that will be the episode, an episode for next week or a future episode. Let's table that spurious claim that to me has no basis in reality. Let's just look at the facts on the ground globally. The United States has more than 900 military bases around the world. The United States has security arrangements, security pacts with dozens upon dozens of countries. The United States has, for example, a a more than half century long arrangement with South Korea, where South Korea is de facto a military state of the United States. The United States still has, because of the lack of a peace agreement, a peace agreement over the war of aggression on Korea, sometimes known as the Korean War, because there was no real peace agreement, just an armistice, the United States still has the capability of taking over South Korea's military at any time for the purposes of war. So really, South Korea's military and essentially its government by default is a protectorate of the U.S. military. And there are more than 10,000 troops south of the demarcation zone that occupy South Korea. And if you know anything about the Jeju Islands, you know that these troops 
rape, plunder, and destroy so much of the vital lands and resources of the people of that nation, especially the indigenous people of that nation. So that's just one example. And there are hundreds more because the United States is everywhere. The United States is occupying a third of Syria militarily, cutting that country off from its own water and oil resources. I mean, in this context, it's quite obvious where the United States has alone, we're not even talking about its allies, the United States alone has 400 plus military bases in the Asia Pacific. And guess where China is? China's in the Asia Pacific. And so it's quite, I think, remarkable that China only has this, it only has one overseas military base, and it's not in the Solomon Islands. It's in Djibouti, uh, in the Horn of Africa. And similar to the security pact with the Solomon Islands, the arrangement with Djibouti, this base, is not about occupying Djibouti. It's actually about protecting in a very hostile environment. We're talking about a war-torn Horn of Africa, Somalia, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Eritrea, these countries, a lot of them have been war-torn, and there is instability that is just rampant and rife across this region. And so Djibouti, the military base in Djibouti is, is meant to protect some vital infrastructure, for example, like the railway that is connecting Djibouti to Ethiopia and further in uh, to the African continent. Uh, this railway is extremely important for a, land, a country like Djibouti, which has so many disadvantages economically if it is not connected to the rest of the Horn. And that is what China is doing there, right? And it's taking part in rescue missions because there's piracy, there's terrorism that occurs all the time in these regions. That's what China is doing there. But the United States, on the other hand, has been drone striking Somalia, destroying, it's it's played a role in multiple occasions, destroying Somalia's economy and governance system, right? The United States backed Ethiopia's 2006 invasion of Somalia. Uh, we know about what happened in the 90s, also decimating the country. So the United States has absolutely no right, and the West has no right to, to lecture China or anyone else about security packs, about national security, about what is what is necessary in this moment. Because this new Cold War is, in the propaganda sense, all about turning reality on its head. It's about painting China as this force of invasion, attempting to destroy smaller countries, in order to expand its own interests. And that couldn't be any more of just a blatant projection. There, it's just so obvious right now, right? It's just so obvious right now with this Russia-Ukraine conflict happening, with the way that the United States continues to instigate, just instigating over and over and over again, this conflict, pumping hundreds of millions, sometimes in a single day, into Ukraine's military in order to prolong this conflict, that the United States is really the force of destabilization that China is always portrayed as. And so the United States makes up its own rules, and the new Cold War is is essentially the doctrine of the U.S. making its own rules, vocalizing its strategy at the moment, its overall political, military, and economic strategy worldwide, is about coalescing all the imperialist countries in the world to antagonize and ultimately pressure the Chinese government to either become a compliant state, which will never happen on its own, or to collapse and become a compliant state, which I also believe won't happen on its own. But 
the goal is there. And so when you hear things like Australia's government and its media openly publishing and saying that Australia must be ready to invade the Solomon Islands like Macro Business did, David Lewin Smith. When you hear this, you should think that this is just another instance where the United States and the West, its Western puppets, junior partners, are attempting to choke and starve China. A lot of regime change operations around the world at this time have that, if not it's as its primary goal, it is its peripheral goal. And so, lastly, I just want to say that this rules for me, for thee, rules for thee and not for me principle has a real material basis to it, an economic basis. The United States and the West are very concerned about China's Belt and Road Initiative and about China's growing influence around the world, especially with poorer countries, oppressed countries, countries in the global South, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and everywhere in between, and even Europe. They're concerned that China's growing influence will turn these countries away from the U.S.'s orbit. And the, the big concern is that China can offer investment for roads, for rail, right, high speed and, and, and otherwise, high technology like artificial intelligence, 5G telecommunications and the like, schools, hospitals, right? This necessary infrastructure you need to actually develop an economy. The United States is concerned that, one, it cannot match the commitments made by China, and two, that this will mean that these countries will take a, a, a different political path away from the United States. And it's already happening. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has magnified this problem because now, and today it was announced that Europe, was it today? No, I think it was a couple of days ago it was announced that Europe is actually considering, EU is actually considering paying for its gas in rubles now <laughs> after some careful consideration, <laughs> which wasn't really necessary given that 40% of natural gas that Europe consumes comes from Russia and there's no way you can just turn that off. But nonetheless, they're now considering paying for in rubles. You had Saudi Arabia right, thinking now about trading oil and yuan with China. I mean, these are the big examples of a general trend that countries like Venezuela, countries all across Latin America, Mexico is now nationalizing its lithium, and that uh, economic sovereignty could hold just enormous weight in how countries like Mexico decide to relate to countries like China. Right, China has so much to give back, and the United States knows that it has nothing to give back at this point, except what it accuses China of doing, which is military expansionism and aggression. The United States has plenty of economic and military capacity for that. Right, It has a lot of military contractors to satisfy, and... That is the general makeup, general trend of this global situation, this new Cold War that we're in, which causes hysteria to come about around even a small island chain nation like the Solomon Islands. But it's very significant because we're going to see more and more of this, right? More than 120 countries have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. And most of these countries come from all parts of Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And a lot of European countries have also signed on, especially those European countries like, let's say, uh, Greece, which are under just brutal austerity 
from the European Union, right? So there's so much geopolitical context to this, and we just need to remember that. That was the biggest point of this episode, was to just remind, based on this security deal, right, how hypocritical this new Cold War is, how it is really based on some some extremely crass racism, basically painting the Solomon Islands as incapable of determining its own destiny and saying that China is just coming in despite the fact that Australia is literally occupying the Solomon Islands, that China is the one that's coming in and creating a real security problem in the region. That is just a huge part of what this new Cold War is about, right? It's about domination. It's about hegemony. It's about reinforcing a world order where the United States rules without question and where its junior partners help fortify and reinforce that hegemony and that rule as essentially junior partners or puppets. Uh, That's how Australia operates. Japan operates in its foreign policy. A lot of it is shooting. It's shooting. It's a lot of shooting yourself in the foot. The United States is doing this, of course, in, in a big way with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how these sanctions have really blown back at the U.S. But it's not just Russia-Ukraine. The trade war against China was a big part of that. And, right, because who lost the trade war? It was U.S. corporations lost a lot when it came to this trade war on China. And Australia has intense economic ties with China. A lot of Australia's economy is just reliant upon China. But still, it is pursuing this very dangerous road of quote-unquote decoupling on behest of the United States. Literally investing in think tanks that are like the ASPI, that are funneling propaganda, censoring us on Twitter. People who say anything truthful about China censored on Twitter. Right? You have this extreme racist environment in Australian politics right now. And that's because a lot of its military foreign and foreign policy is dictated by the United States. The Australian Department of Defense is almost locked in to a dependent relationship on the U.S. And that's what AUKUS was about. The security agreement that was agreed upon in 2021, the latter half of 2021, between the UK, the US, and Australia. But nonetheless, this this is the overall trajectory, right, of this new Cold War. Joe Biden, at the head of the United States at the, at the moment, he kind of reflects this phenomenon, right? He is almost the, even though he's very incompetent, his political orientation is is kind of the perfect reflection of what the ruling class, of what the new Cold Warriors want to see when it comes to reinforcing this policy, this overall agenda. Because he's doing exactly what this agenda really requires. It requires that the United States huddle under its big tent all of these uh, colonial and imperialist countries to try to wage a full frontal assault on all levels, diplomatic, propaganda, propaganda, political, military, economic, on all levels to wage this new Cold War on China. But with that said, I want to open it up because it's been about a half hour and I want to spend uh, the next 15 to a half hour talking to you all. So again, welcome everyone. Good to be with all of you. So I have Rudy in the queue, and then anyone else, please uh, join in. But Rudy, you are now in the queue. Hey, Danny, how you doing? Can you hear me? Hear you. Sorry, I muted myself. <laughs> I am here, and I can hear you. But please, please continue. Yeah. So, 
as I said um, in the comments, I think you're right. I think what this is about is the U.S. just acting like a bully as usual. And um, I think a lot of us are susceptible to American propaganda. I mean, this stuff really works. I mean, I'm as suspicious as, you know, you find whenever the U.S. says something. But then when you're always talking to people in the U.S., you know, you're, there's a lot of excuse-making, excuse-making, excuse-making to the point where you think maybe you're just crazy. You know, maybe this is just how things should be. And I've been listening to Malians speak about um, what's happening in uh, in the Ukraine, and they have a perspective of what's happening in the Ukraine that is a lot closer to ours, you know. And, yeah, we're... Even though you might like, you might not agree on everything, right? You can still see where their arguments are very sound. And it's just like a matter of just difference in opinion. And many of them just see it very clear cut that the U.S. is making another move. And it's, and it's leaving these countries that are, that are invested in survival uh, with like very few options where, you know, a leader could decide or a group of leaders or even the people, you know, because there's a lot of Russians that are, you know, that have lost mil- plenty of neighbors, plenty of family members um, to Nazis and stuff. And th- this is real stuff to them, you know. So it's nice for us to be out here saying, oh, you know, oh, Russia, you shouldn't do this. Russia... I still don't know. I still haven't heard the, the argument what Russia should have done. And, you know, and yes, we were always making excuses for the United States. It's, it's in the United States is exceptionalist and then is an exception or the United States is innocent. And then there's this like cognitive dissonance about the two and nobody ever like, it's like, wait, you're saying that the United States is, um, Exceptional. Exceptional. Do you know what that means? That the United States is different from everybody. Like, how is the United States supreme over these? Isn't this racist? You know, and then we look at our whole foreign policies. It's racist and it's opportunistic. You know, whatever you want to say it is, but it's always the same countries. And it's the brown, it's the yellow, it's the red, it's the black countries that are that are always getting bombed, that cannot have nuclear uh, energy, nuclear weapons, that, um, that, you know, whose children... Yes, those they can be bombed. You know, children cannot be bombed. That's 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 something of the I don't know 18th century. But Yemenese children children are getting bombed all the time. Um, we're bombing Somali children, and we just never want to like you know deal with these two massive contradictions. And but it's it's normal. And again, it's it it, it makes sense that. Yes, even if we were to pretend that China is uh, an empire, you know, um, okay, why is it that only white countries can be empires? I've always, I had, you know, why only the the countries that, why is it only that white countries can have monarchs and a billion acres, you know, it's, it's the craziest stuff. It's like, yeah, if there is, if we're going to say that the world is nasty and it's this and that, why is it that okay yes the the world is no it's normal for the world to be ruled by um oh you know white countries but it's not normal for china to decide okay well we're going to play this game of like the fittest um reigns and stuff and we're going to because we're a massive country or a massive population we're big yeah we're going to take over because that is the rule of the game and the united states has been the referee for the longest time and has never changed the rules so now everybody's like oh there's an issue because china's flexing but that's the rule of the game it wasn't china that made the game the United States made it. If we're gonna, but it's 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 there's a there's a lot of just it it speaks to the level of control that the United States has of culture of of you know of um how, how do I say it pop of sports of 
everything because I, again it's the things that people will say and you turn around and you're like do do you know what the implications of what you and yeah I, I don't I don't know what else to say you you're completely right the United States again is wanting to leverage its control of sports of everything and just like bully Russia down bully China down and it's not going to stop it, you know it's 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 like i'm oh i'm not punching you i'm not punching you i'm not punching you <laughs> you know it's 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 some crazy stuff yeah well thanks for for the comments um rudy uh, that was uh, i th- i think you you know you made a lot of good points i think it's a cognitive dissonance really which then uh, allows the united states as well to and the west and all of its junior partners to to deflect from their own shortcomings and i think uh, that i know that there are plenty of ideas for the next episode uh, in terms of of what we could talk about but that that is one in and of itself is how this cognitive dissonance this kind of blame china blame russia russia and china are the evil doers we need to judge you know we judge all of their actions much more harshly than uh, the majority judges the U.S.'s actions abroad. I think shows that cognitive dissonance and that American exceptionalist disease, right? And I mean, I wrote a book on this about how prevalent this is and about how it really stands as a real barrier to any kind of peace movement. I mean, that's where we're at right now is that the peace movement is incredibly small at the moment in part because even if there is, let's say, quote unquote, war fatigue, even if there is uh, um, disillusionment with the U.S.'s dealings abroad, there are not a lot of people willing to stand up to it and uh, attempt to do something about it because of the weight of this propaganda and how much there is almost a consensus that there are countries there are uh, other there are other forces out there that are quote unquote worse um but in any event i am ready to take another caller if you all um have any uh, further comments or questions today on this uh, sunday it is uh, Sunday early afternoon here where I'm at, Eastern Time, United States. Um, I hope that you have your coffee, your breakfast, brunch, whatever you do uh, at this time. If you're joining from somewhere else, the West Coast, it's much earlier. Um, and then, you know, going the other direction, uh, talking about later in the day. So getting ready for things like dinner. But nonetheless, uh, thank you all for joining. Uh, I don't see any other callers in the queue. Sometimes there's a bit of a lag, though. But um, but in any event, right? I think that what we're seeing and what we will continue to see in this new Cold War, and I see TJ now, is uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to continue to see, I think, more examples of what the Solomon Islands tells us. And... I think it's up to us to to really dispel exactly where the problem resides. But I'm going to let TJ in now. So TJ, you are in the queue. Well, hey, good show. Thanks for having me on, Danny. No problem. I've heard some rumors. Um, some people have made the arguments that uh, lockdowns in China right now have to do with prepping their civilians for the upcoming war. Do you see any merit to that? Would that be upcoming war like uh, Taiwan? Is that what people are saying? Uh, perhaps, or perhaps even a larger world war. Hmm. That's interesting. I have not, I have not heard that. That's the first time I've heard it. Uh, but maybe it's because I'm intentionally uh, ignoring some of the commentary on the Shanghai lockdown because it's, it's quite. Where have you heard that? I'm just curious. Uh, it's just rumors, you know, just just people on come encounters with. Um, it just seems it just seems kind of absurd that they're even in a lockdown right now. It just seems very uh, like everything, very manufactured. 
mm. very unplanned, very unorganized. And uh, it doesn't seem to be really all that effective in any way that I can see, even from a health perspective. So it just seems like, yeah, they're, they're kind of grooming their population for what a war would look like and, and basically uh, martial law within their own territories. Well, yeah, well, let me, uh, okay, no, I can definitely comment on this. Um, so thanks for the, uh, the comments, um, TJ. My, my take, and I think we can end on this because this is all, this is a big topic. My take on this is that one, I don't, I don't disagree that there definitely was a bit of a chaotic, situation um with the shanghai uh with the shanghai response to omicron certainly right i've spoken to people out there i had an interview with andy borum at shanghai daily who's been living in china for um, 10 years and is in shanghai right now it has been in his apartment for i think over a month now and certainly there were issues. There was definitely a level of disorganization. But I don't see any merit to this idea that its measures are to prepare for anything other than responding to Omicron. And everyone has their uh, opinions, I think, about COVID. My opinion about this is that or at least my take, my conclusions on what's happening in Shanghai is that the biggest problem with what happened in Shanghai is not has nothing to do with China's zero COVID strategy, which lockdowns are just a, a very small portion of like a, a much broader policy. I think it was Shanghai's experimentation with another kind of way of implementing this strategy, which just didn't work. Omicron is highly contagious. And so according to people that I've spoken to there, this policy of grid management, which they launched, uh, I believe, a few months ago, just didn't work when the first cases of Omicron started coming about. And then the government, the local government, was not prepared for the large outbreak. So even now, Despite the cases are going down now, but there have been an unfortunate deaths of elderly, and this is, I think, where the U.S. and the West really lag is that in China it really matters when, let's say, thirty to fifty elderly people die. In the United States, that's seen as oh, that's nothing, right? Given that we've seen hundreds of people die per day in the best of times, and then thousands of people per day in the worst, most of them being elderly or or people who are vulnerable even to the Omicron variant that is touted uh, as the, I guess, less lethal, but much more highly contagious variant of this virus. So in any event, the policy in Shanghai right now is actually turning a corner in the sense that there are positive signs of decline of a decline in cases, but because of the delays in testing and because of, I think, what was a little bit of a lax response in the beginning, that that's what caused the outbreak to become huge. And now it's going to spread to other parts of China, and we're going to see China continue to fight the virus. Um, But I don't think that China's fight of COVID-19 ever has anything to do with war. I think that, um, I think China's been pretty consistent about, how it prepares for what could be a hot war, right, with the United States at a given, whatever given moment that should come, is one, to prevent it from by any means necessary. I think China's been doing a really good job at that part of it, right, through diplomacy, through reaching out, through being really the proactive side of attempting to reduce tensions, and really never doing anything. I mean, to be honest, this is just an honest assessment. China has not done anything to antagonize the United States. Just like Russia has not done anything to antagonize the Russia and China have said, hey, we want to work with the United States. We want to cooperate with the United States economically, politically, whatever. But, the, you know, the opposite is just not true. So, and on the other hand, uh, China's, you know, it, it has 
put a lot more attention on its own defense. And I think that that attention and that policy that it has to um, ensuring that China is prepared for any kind of threats to its sovereignty is is enough, right? And I think the military strategists, even in the United States, understand that it is enough that that China that any war with China would be disastrous because the United States just has really no no chance. So I don't think the lockdown in Shanghai has anything to do with that. I think Shanghai it tends it's it's more metropolitan, it's more westernized. Local governments in China have a lot of variation in terms of their competency and effectiveness. This has just been something that's just been a, a, tr- a truth for Chinese society for so long, even under socialist governance. That that uh, you know the local governments tend to have the most corruption, the most issues, and that's part of the anti-corruption campaign that Xi Jinping launched in 2012: is to clean that situation up and to ensure that there is much more effectiveness coming from that side. And so, yeah, I, 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 I don't agree with the idea that there's any sort of preparations for war happening in Shanghai. I think the fight against COVID in Shanghai is really about COVID and uh, the various uh, issues that come up with trying to continue a strategy and change the strategy among new conditions among what is, right, I think a ridiculous situation that we're in where we have two years of a pandemic where the, you know, the countries leading this new Cold War have essentially abdicated their responsibility. And so China is trying to maintain its responsibility to its own people and to others in this uh, very difficult context. And so I'm going to let Jay in as the next caller. You are now ready Hello. Hello. Well said, Danny. Very well said. And I was going to comment exactly that, but just really quick noticing this guy, TJ, the way he asked you that question was rhetorically. He Mm -hmm. already had his answer. He already knew what he wanted to say. And when you asked him where he got his sources, he didn't have any. Mm -hmm. So even just in his own imagination, he wants China to prepare for war and to go to war against the U.S., blah, 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 without, and he's so worried about this, without realizing that his own white supremacist United States Army is currently in over 10 major wars globally and conflicts and arming other armies to destroy the world. And he's so worried about China. Sweetie, TJ, you can focus on your own problems If you're a white man, you can look in the mirror and focus on your own white problems. Do not worry about brown people over the uh, over half the world away. You don't have to worry about that. You can focus on your own white issues, focus where your own money goes to and leave brown people alone. Just leave brown people alone. We don't care about your opinion. But very well said, Danny. And congrats to all the comrades who know the truth and know not to speculate nor warmonger onto brown people. All right. Well, we are reaching the end of the program. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, I, I, I mean, I definitely, those sentiments are, are valid. Definitely. You know, I try, you know, in this podcast, I try to address as long as they are, you know, not within the realm of uh, hostilities toward me or any others here. Um, I try to at least address them, but definitely, right. I think we should be basing our information on sources or things that we've studied, read, experienced. We should be looking at this from the lens of all sides and then making the conclusion about which side is correct or at least in the direction of correct. And so, you know, I definitely get all those sentiments. This We should definitely, you know, uh, reflect on 
where we get this information and how we come to the conclusions that we do. But um, I'm hoping in this podcast that we can, you know, uh, talk about these things in a way that, that is productive. So I appreciate um, all of your contributions. But nonetheless, um, I will, uh, I see TJ's in the queue. Um, TJ, if you have a minute, just respond uh, because, um, you know, I'll, I'll let you respond. Uh, but after that, um, and then I'll respond and then we can, um, and then we can close up. So TJ, I'll let you respond, but only got a minute. Well, Danny, much respect for allowing me to get back on and just respond to that absurdity. Uh, it's clear I kicked the hornet's nest. I, I don't have skin in the game either way. It's probably in my best interest for us not to go into war with China or have a worldwide conflict that would be clearly worse for everyone. So I, I don't have an axe to grind in that respect. I'm just conveying information that I've been reading about and to see if there's any correlation to what we see. So um, I pose that question just to, to ask you. If, if you've heard anything about that, I don't think that was a rhetorical question. And I certainly uh, don't have benefit for believing that. So just wanted to throw that in there. Thanks, Danny. Great show. All right. So appreciate all your participation. Um, and, and I do think, you know, everything is political. And so, of course, even if we don't mean certain things, sometimes it can sometimes what we say conveys a message and I think it's good when, when, when people bring that up so we can engage in that as well and learn from it. But, but in truth, I mean, I think, uh, the build up to war, right. Definitely falls on the U S side and we know this and it's quite apparent that a lot of what we're going to hear in the news, what we've already heard in the media is about stoking this understanding of where the world situation is China being the, or Russia now, but China and Russia kind of in this category of the aggressor. And so we're going to have to continue to challenge that, continue to make that part of our work of debunking and, and standing up to war propaganda and building a real peace movement against this new Cold War that the U.S. is leading. And that's what's clear. That's the, the, This podcast is not about this new Cold War, some kind of benign, some kind of all-sides kind of thing. No, it's quite clear where the aggressor really is, who the aggressor really is, and that's uh, the U.S. and its allies. So the Solomon Islands, as this podcast was about really shows that and uh, today today's podcast will end now it was great to see all of you make sure that you subscribe all right to this show if you're not already doing so so you can get the notifications make sure you spread the word about this channel this um this podcast and i'll see you again next week all right so take care everyone good to be with all of you today and, um, you know, have a good rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye.